Good morning once again. It is my privilege to uh, open up God's Word and, and bring it to us this morning. I do pray that all of us here would have ears to hear this morning as His Word goes forth. Um, last Sunday, Pastor Jason started us on a four-week journey looking at our firm foundation. Now, the purpose of this series is to help us to be rooted and some of the core truths that we hold to here at Rancho Baptist Church. Uh, that's our desire. Um, in part one, last Sunday, we looked at revelation, both general and special revelation. Speaking of God's creation, uh, which declares His glory, we look all around. You cannot help but just rejoice and acknowledge we have an amazing God. When you look upon places like Yosemite or Yellowstone or any of these amazing places, we see and recognize our, our God is an awesome creator creation declares His glory. But we also looked at last week that He has spoken to us audibly as well um, through uh, the prophets, through the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, and ultimately through His Word, the Scriptures that we hold in our hands. He has given us the Scriptures in order to provide us with all that we need for life and godliness. And so we look to His Word for truth. We look to His Word for hope. We look to His Word for the answers uh, that, that we need each and every day as we go through this life. This morning we shift into part two of a firm foundation, and our focus this morning is going to be three parts, man, sin, and salvation. We start by looking at man, then we will look at sin and its ramifications, and then we will look at the amazing gift of salvation. We started intentionally with our series looking at Revelation because God's Word is the only foundation that we have. Our time this morning is going to be spent going through a lot of Scriptures. If you want to keep up, you can try and flip pages, but there will be some chunks of Scripture that I read for us this morning because it is the power. It has the answers. I have nothing. I pray that, that you hear none of my words, but that you hear God's Word this morning as we look to it for truth. It is only through reading and spending time studying God's Word that we are able to accurately understand a, a variety of things, understand where we came from, understand who we are, understand how God has worked in our lives, and He is at work in our lives. Apart from God's Word, all we really have is conjecture, feelings, uh, but because God has seen fit to speak to us and to give us His truth, and the Spirit of God is at work teaching us and bringing, bringing to remembrance all that Christ has said, which we have compiled for us here, um, we look to the Word. This is our hope. So if you have your Bibles, I would ask that you open them and turn to the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book, Genesis 1.1. Um, we will begin there this morning. And uh, as you are turning there, I'm going to go ahead and open our time in a word of prayer. We look to Him to lead us and to speak this morning. Um, so if you would, bow your heads with me. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your Word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Father, you thank, we thank You for the hope that we have of Your Word. We thank You that the promises we have in Your Word. We thank You that the amazing truths your word has made clear to us who we were, who we are, where we are going. Father, we pray that you would make these things so very clear. 
I ask that you would empty me of my own thoughts, my own intentions, but that you would only speak what you desire to have spoken this morning through me. Father, may your word go forth in power and in truth, and we pray this for your glory and in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the Bible opens up with these words in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And for the bulk of that first chapter, we are given this description of the creation. We are told of, of the sun and the moon and, and light and darkness. We are told of land and sea and, and all these creatures and birds that fly. We are given an amazing count. But then at the culmination of this, if you jump down to verses 26 and 27 in chapter 1, we are told this. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, this isn't our focus this morning, but I, I do want us to see this glimpse that God is giving us into who he is. He has chosen to, to make himself known to us specifically as a triune God, right? We are told in here, let us make man in our image. We, we, we recognize that, that God is one in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and that he has seen fit to make man, humanity, in his own image. There are many other pictures within the Scripture of the Trinity, and I would encourage you to spend some time looking through those. Uh, that word is not used but the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is evident all throughout the Scripture, and it is a beautiful glimpse of our great God whom we worship. But we recognize this morning that as humanity, we've been made in the image of our God, and there are so many Scriptures that speak and affirm to the creation of man. Psalm 100 verse 3 puts it this way, Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of his pasture. It is God who has made us. We exist because of God. Matthew 19, verse 4. Jesus answering them and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? James 3, 9. James 3 is a tough chapter. I want to rip it out of my Bible because it's very convicting at times. Speaking to our tongue and the damage and the destruction that our words can have as we speak but listen to what it says, James 3, 9, and speaking of the dangers of our tongue, it says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. When we speak against people, we are speaking against men and women who carry the image of our, our creator. We don't want to do that. And we see that the other significant takeaway is that we have been made in that image, the image of God. Um, we are distinct from every other created living thing. 
We are distinct. We bear the image of our Creator. We are not like the animals. And at the completion of every day of creation, God declared that it was good. But after He had created man, He says, Behold, it is very good. There is something special about humanity. The meaning of the Hebrew word for image is literally a copy or a representation. And so you can think of it like this. For me, as I was going through it, I was thinking of, of King Nebuchadnezzar, right? And he establishes this massive golden statue that looked like himself. And he declared that all the people would bow down and worship this, this golden statue. And anyone who would come into Babylon would look upon that and they would know he is the one with authority. He is the one who rules. God has put his image upon us. And when people look at us, they should see that God is the one who has authority. That God is the one who rules. They should see him in us and worship him. That is a, a, an amazing thing. As God's image bears there is actually a responsibility that is put on us to represent him accurately. We are his representation to a lost and dying world. We should be pointing people to his sovereignty, to his goodness, to his faithfulness over all things. That is our purpose here. One of the most significant truths that comes from us being made in the image of God is something that we looked at earlier. When you think about the Trinity, you think about God and three persons, have, they'd existed together for all of eternity in perfect unity and fellowship. There was perfect love amongst the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There was nothing lacking. There was no need within them. That is not why we exist, because there was a need. Perfect unity, perfect fellowship, perfect relationship. And as men and women created in His image, we have been designed and created for relationship. He's given us the amazing gift of relationships. God's Word tells us that God is love. A key aspect of relationship is love, caring for someone. And as those who are made in His image, we have been told to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. They say, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're called to love our enemies. We've also been told to love fellow believers. John 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus saying, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And then we've also been told to love God himself. John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. You see, relationships are the great gift that God has given to us. And it is a gift in so many ways, right? The, the companionship of a spouse, the enjoyment of friends, the encouragement of fellow believers. But all of these relationships demonstrate that we have been made in the image of God. They are to serve a far greater purpose than simply our own enjoyment 
and these relationships, they are to point a lost and dying world to God himself. The way in which we handle our relationships. We recognize that God is the one who has created all things, including mankind, and he has chosen to put his image upon us. Because of that, there is a quality and a value to humanity that surpasses and supersedes all other created things. We, we recognize that a big part of our role as being created in the image of God is relationship, that he has made us for that. We are to point people to him through that. And then that leads us into our second point. And, and know that, as Pastor Jason said last week, we were only able to touch on these briefly. There is so much encompassed in these, but I really want to spend some time looking at, at sin, digging in a little bit deeper into the reality of that and salvation. And so we move to point two, and we focus our attention now to sin. And one of the most common and accurate definitions of sin is to miss the mark, right? I'm sure many of you have heard that before. Define sin as, as simply missing the mark. Um, the problem is for us that when we tend to think of that, we think of it in terms that are far smaller and more insignificant than what it really means to God. When we think of missing the mark, oftentimes it's like, it was pretty good, but it could have been a little bit better, you know, or it's not, not the best, but it's not the worst either. That's what we think of with missing the mark. And yet God has established the mark as perfection. And so for us, when God says sin is missing the mark, it's anything that is not perfect. Perfect holiness, perfect obedience, it is sin. When we think of that, we must think of it the way God does. God requires perfect holiness, perfect obedience. And any deviation from that is sin. That's why when we look at a verse like Romans 3.23, it's obvious to us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's clear, right? We're not perfect. None of us. We, we have messed up. We have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. If we are honest with ourselves and we consider our own thoughts, our own actions, there is not one of us who can say that we are without sin. In fact, I was listening to a sermon this week uh, by Pastor John MacArthur talking about sin, and he very rightly and graciously uh, pointed out that if we are truly being honest with ourselves, we would be able to say accurately, rightly, that we are the worst sinners we know. We all love to look at other people and to judge them by their actions or by what they say. We can find people who are doing awful, horrible things today. I agree. There are people doing awful, horrible things. I don't know their thoughts. I don't know their intents in those things, but I know my own. I know the thoughts that I have in my head. I know the, the selfishness. I know the pride. And the, the worst sinner that I know is me, if we're being honest, right? That's, that's the reality of it. But we like to go, oh, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as that person. Look at what they're doing. But no, I know my thoughts. Even that thought is horrible sin, right? The reality of it. We, we, we have to bear that in mind. As humans, we are prone to worship the creation rather than the creator. We love to worship what we have been given in fact, our favorite created idol to worship is what? Ourselves. 
we love to worship ourselves. We want people to wait on us. We want to be elevated. We want people to think we're amazing. We love to worship ourselves. We're really good at looking out for number one, right? That's what we're prone to, to worship the creation rather than the creator. And we see that. As we, as we come to this place of, of worshiping, we are choosing to do life our way rather than God's when we set ourselves upon the throne. Augustine put it this way. He said, pride is the heart of sin because it is the motive behind man's attempt to live life in the power of self. We, we want to live life in our own power, our own ways, in a way that pleases ourselves. And I think that's what we see in Paul's description in Romans 1. It is a vivid description of humanity. If you would, turn to Romans 1. I'm going to read a large chunk of Scripture for us. I'm going to ask you to hang with me. You can follow along. Um, This is bigger than what we would normally read in here, but I'm going to read verses 18 to the end of the chapter and listen to how humanity is described in here. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So we looked at last week. Creation declares the glory of God. No one has an excuse. Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. He's, he's saying, look at all these things that we worship. The, the world worships these idols. You, you take a tree and you cut it and you carve this thing and you bow down and worship it and you made it with your own hands. Right? We're so prone to worship creation. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They were given the truth and they exchanged it for a lie. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned on their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their heir. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Missing the mark being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, 
arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. There is much that can be said about these verses but just a few quick observations about what it shows us that we've already talked about in regard to sin. Verse 25, right? It states it clearly. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's the reality. That's what we are prone to. And one of the greatest lies of sin is that it satisfies. That's one of the greatest lies of sin, right? When you go after it, you think that this will bring you satisfaction. But it is a lie because all it does is disappoint. It leaves you wanting. It does not fulfill. There is no hope. Humanity is prone to worshiping the creation and it takes on many different forms. Specifically in this section of Scripture, it has been made clear to us that homosexuality is sin. We are told in here, the, the woman was leaving the natural to go to the unnatural. And then he describes it again for the men. Man lying with other men. The natural way in which God is designed, and they have left that for the unnatural. It is sin. Missing the mark. Against a holy God. But as you look down at verses 28 through 31, anyone who thinks again that just let's, well, I'm not as bad as them. That list, it starts pretty rough too, that list, right? Murder, you know, all these, these horrible things. Evil, greed, full of envy, deceit, malice. But it even speaks of just simply being boastful, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, not being a man or a woman of our word. This is sin, unloving, unmerciful. These are all sins against a holy God. They are missing the mark in a way in which God has established his standard. We cannot make the standard fit into our own desires. It is God's standard of what sin is. We must recognize that. One systematic theology that I was reading defined sin this way. It said, sin is a lack of conformity to God's will in attitude, thought, or action. Whether it is committed actively or passively. The center of all sin is autonomy. It's all about us, right? Which is the replacing of God with self. We take him off the throne and we put ourselves on it. Always closely associated with sin are its products. What do you think those might be? Pride, selfishness, idolatry, and get this last one, lack of peace. If you were living a life of sin... If you were in sin, missing the mark, I promise you, you do not have peace. You do not have peace. You're not satisfied. There's no rest. There's always something else you're looking for. The next thing. But in Christ, there is peace. And at this point, I, I want to take a moment and, and connect Something else that we talked about in regards to, to man in our creation, that man being made in the image of God is about relationships. The fact of the matter is sin impacts relationships. 
Sin damages relationships. We don't have to go any further than Genesis chapter 4. Really Genesis 2, it's in there as well. But Genesis 4 gives us uh, a a description of this. Verses 3 through 8. It says, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. The destruction, even in the relationship between brothers, because of sin. Cain was angry. He was jealous. He was upset with his brother, and it led him to murder, to kill his brother. And God's description of sin in here is so powerful, right? He describes sin as crouching at the door and that its desire is for us. You see, sin wants to rule your life. Sin wants to take over and control all that you do. Wants to tell you that, yes, it's right. Put yourself on the throne. Treat people however you have to to get what you want. Sin's desire is for you and for your soul. Peter, in his first epistle, put it this way, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust because they wage war against your soul. Sin is waging war against our soul. It wants to destroy us. It wants to tear us down. And yet the most tragic relationship that has been severed as a result of sin is not even brothers, but it is a relationship between man and God. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. They had fellowship with him. He spoke to them. They enjoyed his presence with them. They were in perfect fellowship with him, their, their heavenly father, their creator. But once they sinned, their relationship with God was severed, and everyone who came after bore the sin nature of our father Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. God had warned Adam. He had warned him of the consequences of sin when he said in Genesis 2, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die." Now, we recognize that the day that Adam and Eve ate of that tree, they did not die physically, but they died spiritually. Their relationship with God had been severed. Paul refers to this in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. 
He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath as the rest. We were dead in our sins and trespasses dead and the wrath of God was upon us and with sin not only was there a spiritual death but there is a physical death that comes as well prior to Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they were made to live forever that's actually the reason that God removed them from the garden we miss that but the fact that God sent them from the garden was an amazing act of love and care for Adam and Eve Because in that garden also, not only was there the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there was another tree, the tree of life. And if they were to eat of that tree, they were to live for all of eternity in that sinful state. God in his love and his grace removed them. Genesis 2.22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. God cared for them enough to say, no, I'm going to remove you from this because he had a plan and he had a purpose. There is an eternal death that awaits some. It awaits those who have not put their faith and their trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And this is a hard thing. None of us take joy in sharing the reality of eternal hell and damnation and separation from God, but it awaits those who have not put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. It's described for us in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven had fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If your name is not found written in the book of life, if you have not put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the lake of fire is what awaits. And it is awful. It is torment. It is weeping and gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. It is your body being on fire without end. And it is a right penalty for our sin. It is just that those who are not trusting in Christ would spend eternity in hell. I I take no joy in that, but it is true. And this leads us, though, to our third and our final point this morning, this beautiful point. I came across a quote from Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. as I was studying this week, and he speaks of the reality of sin and the beauty 
of salvation because there is something beautiful about our salvation. Listen to what he says. The bottom line is that we are all sin sick. Sin is painful, chronic, pervasive, debilitating, contagious, costly, and fatal. You have a date with death that cannot be canceled, but there is hope. The fact that Jesus can heal physical diseases is proof that he also can heal spiritual diseases. Isaiah declared, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Healed from what, you might ask? Glad you asked. Isaiah explains, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He closes out by saying this, we have all been poisoned by sin that will lead to eternal death. But Jesus, right? But Jesus intervened. His redemptive suffering on the cross brings healing to the sin-sick soul. Christ brings healing. What's so amazing about saving grace is that it was accomplished also by God in eternity past. It has always been. Listen to Paul's words to his son Timothy in the faith. I know we just finished 2 Timothy, but here you go one more time. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, right? None of us get to take credit for our salvation, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. You see, God has existed from all of eternity. He has no beginning. And His purpose and His plan was salvation through Jesus Christ from all eternity he purposed to extend grace. That's what he does. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Even before the foundations of the world, God purposed salvation. That's his desire. It's his good. You see, Adam and Eve, their, their sin did not catch God off guard, right? They were not surprised by what God did. He's not sitting up in heaven going, oh no, what am I going to do now? That's not where God was. He knew that man would sin against him. He knew that, that man would rebel against his purposes and his ways before he even created them, which is why he also had a plan of salvation from all of eternity. The triune Godhead had decreed that God the Son would come in the flesh to earth in order to be the propitiation, to make payment for all who would believe. This is made clear for us in Ephesians 3.11. At the beginning of, of chapter 3 in Ephesians, Paul is describing that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not just for Jews, but is for Gentiles. Who are Gentiles? Anyone who's not a Jew. That's us, right? The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is for, for everyone, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is a great mystery that had been hidden, but has now been revealed 
And he says to them that this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. God planned our salvation from even before the foundations of the earth. We knew that Christ was coming to lay down his life on the cross. The scriptures teach that Jesus came to be the substitutionary atonement, to endure God's wrath on our behalf. As I was studying this, I was reminded of how beautiful this picture really is, the love of the cross. The cross is an amazing testimony of love, um, but oftentimes we think of it wrongly. We think of it only as the love of Christ. One commentator put it this way. He said, to many, the view of the atonement pictures the Father as an inherently angry and wrathful God toward man and as won over only reluctantly by the loving sacrifice of the Son. However, this is precisely backward. The Father does not love his people strictly on the grounds that Jesus died for them. Rather, Jesus died for his people because God the Father loved them. God has demonstrated an amazing love. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We often miss the amazing love that the Father has for us and we attribute it only to the Son. And it's here that we come really to the heart of the gospel. We've talked about the creation of man, that we've been made in the image of God. We've talked about sin, that man was so damaged in our relationship with God that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. There's nothing that we could do on our own behalf. We have a desperate need but that God was not caught off guard by that, but that he had determined from eternity past to send his son, Jesus Christ, to bring about restoration, to bring about salvation. All we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God, again, those two words, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were in that state of deadness. While we were in that state of hopelessness, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 6 says it like this, for while we were still helpless, I encourage you not to miss that, while we were still helpless, folks, there was nothing that we could do in and of ourselves to satisfy God. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I have one more quote for us this morning. It's from a great preacher named C.H. Spurgeon. Um, I had to get a Spurgeon quote in here this morning. But listen to this. It's, it's, it's a little lengthy, but whew. He writes... There it stands. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Fix your mind on that and rest there. Let this one great, gracious, glorious fact lie in your spirit till it perfumes all your thoughts and makes you rejoice 
even though you are without strength, seeing that the Lord Jesus has become your strength and your song, yea, he has become your salvation. He has become your salvation. According to the scriptures, it is a revealed fact that in due time, Christ died for the ungodly when they were yet without strength. You have heard these words hundreds of times, I'm sure, maybe, and yet you have never before perceived their meaning. There is a cheering savor about them, is there not? Jesus did not die for our righteousness, but he died for our sins. He did not come to save us because we were worth the saving, but because we were utterly worthless, ruined, and undone. He came not to earth out of any reason that was in us, but solely and only out of reasons which he fetched from the depths of his own divine love. In due time, he died for those whom he describes not as godly, but as ungodly, applying to them as hopeless an adjective as he could well have selected. Do you catch that? God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us who were ungodly. Meaning, we did not live for him. We did not love him. We did not care about him. We cared about ourselves. There was nothing good in us. We were helpless and hopeless. But God in his divine love sent his son. That's an amazing truth. We were hopeless and ungodly, and yet Christ died for us. This salvation is not something that we did earn or even could. There is no way that we could ever pay the debt of our sin to God. The only payment that satisfies sin is death. Our death is not enough. Christ came and laid down his life. Listen once again to these verses that, that were in one of the quotes I read earlier, but if, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This morning we are going to partake of the, the communion table to remember this amazing sacrifice that Christ made on the cross on our behalf. And at this time, I'm going to ask the elders if they would please come forward and ask the praise team to come up. They're going to lead us in song. But as we come to this table, I, I want to share with you that this table is not for everyone. Um, this table is, is not to be taken lightly, and it is for those who have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 
when he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We do not take this table lightly. I want to encourage you this morning, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ this morning as your Lord and Savior, it's okay to allow these elements to pass by you. Don't partake. This is for those who are his sons and daughters. Um, If you are a believer and you have sin in your life, I would encourage you, take a moment to examine yourself, confess your sins, get right with the Lord. If you do not feel as though there is enough time right now, again, allow the elements to pass by. We do not want to partake in this in an unworthy manner. As we come to these, these elements, we... We rejoice in an amazing salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. The the work that was accomplished on the cross as His blood was shed, as the wrath of our Heavenly Father was poured out upon Him, skies darkened, the veil torn in two, Christ crying out, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? And yet as we come to this table, we we remember that the tomb is empty that Christ has risen from the the dead, that he is seated at the right hand of our heavenly Father, that he intercedes on the behalf of his sons and daughters. We remember him this morning. I'm going to ask Howie if he would please uh, come and pray for the elements before we partake. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Fathers, we've been reminded again today This life is all about you. It's your work. It's the work that you assigned to your son, the gift that you provided us, sacrificial gift. Lord, so that we may call you father and we can be your adopted sons and daughters. Lord, keep us, keep top of mind uh, the concepts taught today, the devastating impact of sin, how it separates us from you. And thank you for this opportunity that we can, again, approach your throne, the blood of your Son. I pray that you'd keep us mindful, top of mind, that our lives, our thoughts, our deeds would be those uh, that would glorify you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.